Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thanks, John. Thanks, Jake and Benny, for leading us in worship. If you guys could stand, um, and we're going to read the passage for today. Again, this is something we started doing since we regathered. It's a church tradition that has a biblical basis, but not mandated, but we decided to do it. And it's really a way of acknowledging that God's words are more important than our words and my words and your words and all of our words. And so um, we just want to honor that. And so at the end of this, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to tell God that you're thankful for that. So chapter 2 verses 4 through 8 of 1 Peter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Lord, thanks for your word. Um, I pray that it may, may richly dwell within us and we might dwell in it. Uh, this morning, God, that you would press it deeper into our souls and that you would speak to us through it. We would walk away different uh, because of our time with you this morning. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These are, I think, um, difficult times for the church. I think they're difficult times uh, for Christians. I think pastors for all time have probably been able to say these are difficult times for the church, but I'm going to make my case uh, for these times. Fewer people attend church now Um, than did, say, 50 years ago in our culture. Not globally. Globally, the church is doing great. And in certain parts of the world, it's just exploding, you know. But here, um, in the United States, in the West, uh, fewer people attend um, than did 50 years ago or even 15 years ago. And those surveys are coming out all the time. I'll never forget a guy that that preached early in Visio Oak City Day's church history um, as a guest preacher. And he, he had pictures of the annual Sunday school parade in downtown Manhattan. And they were like from the 50s, but we're all like, wait, what planet is that from? That in Manhattan they had a Sunday school uh, parade, but they did. And it's just uh, a different time. And I don't think, uh, the studies will also say that the percentage of really committed folks that are committed to walking with Jesus um, isn't changing a lot. It's kind of the mushy middle of church that is changing as it's become less socially expected. It used to be socially expected that you were part of a church, um, a social norm. Uh, an expectation um, where, where it's not that. And, and now, like, are you a little bit nervous telling the people you work with that you go to church? You know? And, like, what conversation might ensue from that? And it's just changed in our culture. Uh, the church's tax-exempt status is a good, like, I don't know, example of that. And that the church has been tax-exempt for I don't, I don't know how long, but um, your contributions to the church are tax exempt. I get a housing allowance because the church has been seen as a social good for the country. And so the, it, just like the child tax credit, like the government incentivizes that. But now people are arguing to take that away. And I think in the next 25 years, it will be taken away. So it's just church occupies a different place in our culture. The people that do attend church, um, that's you, you guys and me, like attend less frequently than, than used to. So how many of you grew up going to church 
three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Wow, a lot of you. So I didn't, but a lot of you. And, and that's just not, doesn't happen anymore. And studies will say that for people, just for Sunday mornings, people, you know, it used to be three or four, three, three and a half times a month. Now it's like two. And it's just a different, um, it's a different time. And some of that's culture and busyness and season of life and more options and online. And, you know, there's just a lot with that. But it's, it makes it, it's a little bit harder for the church. COVID has been hard for the church. Um, and we have folks that are online. Welcome for you, those, those of you that are online. Uh, and, and every week we do. We have a pretty steady number of folks that are online, and that's fantastic. I'm glad that option is there because of COVID concerns. And just this week, like talking to someone, they're expecting a baby in early December, and I totally get that. If my wife was pregnant right now, I would probably think about it um, really differently. For the record, we have not had any COVID, like whatever is coming out of gathering as a church. Um, but I understand why people have concerns about that. But along with that, with COVID, people have just gotten out of the habit um, of going to church. And it's easy to forget what it's like to be, um, you know, with your church. And, it, and so it's a little bit easier to stay at home. Uh, there's no shortage of church scandals right now. When I was a kid, it was Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and all the hair that went along with that. You know, it was the televangelist scandals and the money now, like, just in the past few weeks, um, the, the Southern Baptist Convention, and I'm a fan of the Southern Baptist Convention. I understand a lot of people have issues. I didn't grow up with it, but I know a lot of great people um, in that church, that denomination. But man, just the last few weeks, there's been this talk about how they've handled sexual abuse cases over the years and, and like whether the executive committee is going to waive attorney-client privilege to investigate that. Whenever you're down to attorney-client privilege, you got a problem. You know what I mean? Like, that's just in a bad way. <laughs> and so that's not good. And then this came out a couple weeks ago that I think the French Catholic Church had an independent investigation, and they estimated, and I don't know what the time frame in the 20th century was, that three, over 300,000 people were sexually abused by French Catholic priests. And like I read that and just sat down and was quiet for a little while because it's a devastating number. And, um, you know, and that's been a thing. And I don't know how, I don't know what someone does when the person that like represents God to you does that. Like how you re-engage God, much less the church. Um, and so that's hard. The, uh, there's a podcast out now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill church which is a super popular podcast and it's really about the abuse of power within church and it's emblematic of what's happening in a lot of churches and and particularly mega churches let me say this i'm a fan of the mega church i wish every church was a mega church because i wish so many people were following jesus that we just couldn't you know we didn't have enough room because everybody should follow jesus but there's a dynamic where a, a pastor in that environment inevitably becomes a celebrity and becomes isolated and is really really difficult so those are all hard things, you know. It's a hard season for church. Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it's just benign cultural trends. Some of it's the animosity towards church that happens when you became a post-Christian nation. And as a result of that, I kind of feel, I fear that the church might have a little bit of a self-image problem. Like no one's given the, the church participation trophies so she can feel good about herself. Uh, man, God loves the church. God loves the church. God loves this church. God loves lots of churches around here. I think any church that is preaching the gospel, that is a gospel-believing church, God is at work, and he loves those churches. 
And so we can feel like diminished and less important, a little uncertain about the future, and it seems like people don't care, or they're not engaged with Jesus, or they're spiritually. Um, but Jesus doesn't feel that way about his church. The church is the place where people meet Jesus, and Jesus starts to change people's lives. And that can happen in other environments, but that's what his church is for, and it happens best within a healthy, functioning church, and there is nothing like the church in our culture. And so this little section of First uh, Peter is about the church and God's vision for the church in culture and really even why things are difficult for the church right now and how he knew that was going to happen, but the church's future is incredibly bright. So here's first point. God is the one that's building his church. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So the first you is singular. As you individually come to Jesus, the second you, you yourselves, is plural, are being built up together like living stones uh, as a spiritual house. Uh, for Peter, I bet these words are ringing in his ears where he makes his confession of faith to Jesus and Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church ever, ever. And he knows that. Uh, so God is building us together as a church uh, like living stones. He's, he's building us together. Let me say something. This is um, and this is a lot to the folks that are online, and I'll say this carefully. It is hard for Jesus. I've worked a lot on this line. It's hard for Jesus to build us together as living stones from our living rooms. That's a good line, right? I like that line. I like that line. Um, this is why church on TV is not enough. Now, I know I've said this before, church is a scary place if you haven't been in church before. Um, people have asked, like, are you going to, you know, just take the online thing off so we get people back in church? No, I'm not going to <laughs> because, and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort and it's volunteer time because it's a great entry for people that haven't been in church for a long time, you know. Um, people have had bad experiences at church and some form of abuse at church. And so it's a great chance to check, to check things out. But you need to give us a chance in person. You need to do that because, because watching it on a screen is just a different thing. Being the church is not a disembodied group of people. It's an embodied group of people. that It's the body of Christ, and he is putting us together. Um, and so the online is good, but you just get to a point where it's easier to keep the kids at home, <laughs> to have your coffee and your breakfast while you're watching church, and we are missing out on something uh, by doing that. There's another passage about God building the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So again, this picture of being built together, but it's the household of God. And that's another metaphor for the church, that we are like a family. We are God's family. And I started thinking about this this week. We're not, we're not good at this as a family anymore. I'm not good at this as a dad. But when our kids were a little bit younger, we were, we were, I was a bit of a Nazi about how often we would have family dinners together around the table. Whether we had to eat early, whether we had to eat late, we were all going to sit around that table and kind of have the awkward, what are we going to talk about tonight? 
conversation or I'd ask some stupid questions just to get something going. We'd pray as a family around the dinner table because studies say like that makes a gigantic difference in raising your kids, just being around a dinner table together as a family. Well, as the household of God, this is like being around the dinner table together and worshiping together and receiving the word together. And it matters, y'all. It matters being here um, together. Sunday mornings, we worship, we sit under the word, we serve each other. We serve each other in here. We serve each other back there. Um, Our kids get to see people that love Jesus and love them and to hear the gospel from them over and over again. I've talked about micro-expressions of love that happen on Sunday mornings that I desperately missed when I was standing here preaching to a camera, and it was horrible. (laughs) It was horrible. Uh, I talked to someone just this week who hadn't been for a few months, just been out, and, um, and then we got together for lunch, and he said, man, it felt like being home again, and that's just like music to me. Uh, and I've heard that time and time again. I forget how much I miss being here because it's just what we do. Uh, and so that's what he's saying. We're the household. He goes on and says, um, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Another translation says you're being like knit together. You're being woven uh, together. And he, he wants to weave us together. And that happens. It's like we discover how he's gifted us by the Holy Spirit and how our gifts fill the needs of the church. And every church has its own DNA because he's gifted each church the way that he's gifted it so it can be what he wants it to be, glorify him the way he wants it to glorify him and reach the people that he wants to use that church to reach. But that happens when we're, it happens best when we're together. And so I really do, whether you're here, whether you're online, I just want you to ask yourself the question and evaluate, am I not going to home group, to Sunday mornings, to whatever, to the gatherings, to the camping trip, to the meet and greet, whatever it is, out of a genuine concern for COVID, and there are genuine concerns for COVID. We just got a report last night that someone in church got COVID. It's out there, you know, the numbers are going down, but it's there, so I get that. Or is it convenience? And just ask yourself that question and respond, because... Like, you need to make yourself available and engage what God is doing in the church and how he wants to build us together. Okay, second point. God is using his church to bring people into right relationship with him. This whole thing is a fantastic picture. So he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So we've got the living stone we've got living stones we're gonna have a cornerstone we've got a spiritual house we've got a holy priesthood and we've got spiritual sacrifices what is he talking about he's talking about the temple he's talking about the jewish temple in jerusalem he's saying church you are now the temple you play the role that the temple played in my plan we will we will never be able to fully comprehend the power and the magnitude of the picture that he is giving to them back then um, t- there were temples were central to culture. Every city had temples. There was Greek and Roman gods to everything, and they all had temples. They were in Turkey, and uh, like Ephesus was in Turkey. Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world, which is the Temple of Artemis. Does that picture make it? We have the Temple of Artemis. It's this giant, beautiful, amazing thing, and they had priests, and they had sacrifices in that temple. They know what that is. Um, I have a friend who's a pastor in town who went to Greece this summer, and he went to Athens, 
And um, this pastor's geek out on that stuff. Mars Hill is in Athens. Paul in Acts 17 gave this enormous, fantastic sermon. And I was like, did you go to Mars Hill? And he's like, oh, of course I went to Mars Hill. He said, it's still there. You still go there. He said, the thing that struck me the most about Mars Hill is when you're, when you're on Mars Hill, you're looking across the valley to the Parthenon, which is like the most famous temple for the Greek gods. And he said, so when Paul, in that sermon, he says, God does not dwell in temples made with the hands of men. He's pointing to the Parthenon and saying, that's, that doesn't, that's not, that's rubbish right there, you know? So they all get this. I, I've heard someone preach this week that the Romans thought that Christians were atheists. The Romans thought that the Christian, the early Christians, the church, they were atheists because they didn't have a temple, they didn't have priests, and they didn't make sacrifices. And they thought, what religion doesn't have a temple, doesn't have priests, and doesn't make sacrifices? Well, we're the temple, and Jesus is our high priest, and now we're a holy priesthood, and we don't have to offer those sacrifices because he was the sacrifice, and now there's different types of sacrifices. And so he's saying, like, this is the role that you play now. And it's amazing. For Romans and Greeks, there were all sorts of gods. There were all sorts of temples. For the Jewish people, there was one temple. Um, it was in Jerusalem. It was the center of Jewish life. They made pilgrimages uh, to that temple because that's where God manifested himself to the people. On like the, um, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and on top of the Ark, that's where the glory of God appeared. I was there a few years ago. Have you ever heard of the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall? It is the Temple Mount is still standing, but on the Temple Mount where this temple was is the Dome of the Rock, which is the third holiest site in the Muslim religion. The closest the Jews can get to where the temple was was this western wall, the Wailing Wall. And so they'll, they'll stick their prayers in the rocks um, of that wall because th their prayers are closest to God in that spot. It's crazy when you go there. You take a tour underneath it. They're like, this is actually in this tunnel, the closest you can get. And we think the Ark of the Covenant might still be in the, in the rubble, the ruins of the temple. And so sometimes we hear like strange things going on underneath the Dome of the Rock in all that stuff. They're all into this. There's a, a lady that talked to us who's Jewish from the Temple Treasures Institute. And they have created, they've made all of the Old Testament instruments to, to worship in the temple. And it's very specific if you've ever read all that stuff. They're ready and they're waiting as soon as they get to rebuild the temple so that they can restore proper worship to the Lord. That's what the temple was to them. How huge is it that he says, church, you are now that temple. Whereas God resided in that temple and they're waiting to see God there, that God is here. He is here. I've always wrestled with what to call the room that we meet in. I've always been uncomfortable calling this a sanctuary because Sanctus is holy. It's a holy place. It ain't holy on Tuesday afternoons. You know what I mean? It's holy because you are holy and you are here and God's presence are here because we are gathered at his church. That's, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal picture that he gives us. Now, take this a step further. Um, the church is like replacing the role of the temple. And I didn't pick this up until a few years ago, but I think it's super cool. The temple represented the Garden of Eden. And so in some sense, the church is recreating God's dwelling with man in the garden. So this is going to be some heavy Bible geekery. Hold on, you'll make it through it. It'll just last a minute. But the Garden of Eden, God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Um, they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, sin separates us from God. God promises reconciliation, says, I'm going to make this right. But he kicks them out of the garden. 
so they don't eat from the tree of the life, and they'll be stuck with us like this forever. That's the story. And then he, he, um, he, there's a gate to the Garden of Eden, and two cherubim with flaming swords guard the gate so we can't get back in until the plan is worked out for reconciliation. Now, the same word used for he walks among us is the word that's used for how God expresses his presence in the temple. Adam is called to work and keep the Garden of Eden, and the, it's the same wording that's used for the priests and the work that they do in the temple. Gold and onyx decorate the garden. They're later used to decorate the temple, and they're on the, um, the clothing that the priests are, you know, have to wear when they do their things in the temple. The temple and tabernacle are decorated with pictures of palm trees and, and, uh, and flowering trees, and it's garden imagery in the temple to recreate that, and cherubim. So when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, the cherubim with the flaming swords are there. The Garden of Eden faces east. You find that in Scripture. The temple faced east. The Garden of Eden was guarded by these cherubim with flaming swords. The Holy of Holies, the place where God resided, had a veil in front of it. You know what's on the veil? Cherubim. You know what's over the top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. It's all a recreation. Uh, that, that this is like what the, the garden, this is how God is going to make things right, is in the temple so we can restore what it's meant to be like for us to walk with God. And now he's saying the church is the place where that is carried on. Do you see what dignity God has given his church, how important the church is to the whole plan? It's phenomenal. And then at the end of this passage, I'm not done yet, but I'm going to go to the end of the passage for just a second. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He knows the church is going to go through tough times. I'll say this. Jesus was never meant to be a good guy and a good teacher that you could just kind of put to the side as a pet or a mascot or a buddy. Jesus is divine he is the representation of God. He is your Lord and he is your Savior. Or honestly, he should be offensive to you. And if that's the case, then it makes sense that people are going to have a problem with the church. It's actually better that the mushy middle in the church is going away um, and people are having to deal with it. There's not a, a cultural incentive to be a part of the church, that you become a part of the church because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, and so it's a good thing. Now, the sacrifices of the church bring glory to God. And do this quickly. So there was a holy priesthood and spiritual sacrifices. The priests uh, in the temple brought the sacrifices to God. That was their work, and it reconciled people to God. And there's a whole lot with this. Um, the sacrifice has been made, and so the priests don't need to do that anymore. Jesus, by a single offering, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When we accept what Jesus has done for us as that sacrifice, we are perfected and we are being sanctified. That verse doesn't make a lot of sense, but sometimes Christianity doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's okay, there's tension because we can't understand everything. And, but the Bible says the sacrifices we offer are different now. So Paul in Romans says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Um, these are our sacrifices. It's us. And that's not, we don't offer a sacrifice so we can earn his salvation. It's a response to it. I was driving um, my youngest son to school 
uh, this week, and he got a sermon. That doesn't happen often, but pray for my kids because they get sermons now and again uh, from me. Sermonettes, they're short. Uh, but um, we're talking about the difference between karma and grace, and karma is what comes around, goes around, and grace is you're getting what you don't deserve. And, um, and how when you get when you get karma, like what comes around goes around, you deserve it, and say so there's no, you're not really grateful for it because it's just what you deserve, but when you get grace, and that's what Jesus did for us, like you really feel like you want to give them something to express your gratitude to them, and, and Paul's saying like this is what we should give to express our gratitude. We owe our lives to him, and so we offer our lives to him. It's the proper response. And Hebrews says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Uh, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so our, our, our praise is a sacrifice to God. He goes on, don't neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so our works are a sacrifice to God. Our generosity, our concern for the people around us are all like um, sacrifices that we offer to God now. Our prayers and revelation, it says, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And so our, our prayers are like a sacrifice uh, that we offer to God. Matthew um, says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so those sacrifices serve to bring glory to God. Um, and we are, we are the body of Christ, and people experience him in the presence of the church, and they give glory to God. I've said this for years. The best advertisement for the church is the church, and not necessarily this, but like last night when there's, you know, 20 guys there just hanging out. The, the, Jesus said they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another, and um, there are a couple friends that came into that environment. I don't know if they're Christians or not. It's a great advertisement for the church. The church isn't a scary place in that. It's just people that love Jesus and love each other, and lives, their lives are shaped by the gospel, and that is a good, a good thing. So, the church really has replaced the temple. It's the place where the kingdom of God becomes a reality, and in a sense, we replicate Eden, where people walk with God. Uh, and, I, and as I was preparing this week, I thought, um, Someone at some level is going to think it's a little arrogant to say that the church is, is the place, the only place where people meet, uh, where people meet God. And again, God can meet people anywhere, but the church has been given this role to, to mediate reconciliation um, between people and their God. And this passage talks about Jesus as the cornerstone, the cornerstone. Uh, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by, by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then later in the passage, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I've never spent a whole lot of time thinking about cornerstones. Like you kind of pass by buildings and big cities, and every once in a while you see like a, the date on it. You think, oh, that's the cornerstone. But then you think there's a lot of stones down there. Like, don't all of them hold the building up? What's so big deal about a cornerstone? And then, I, and then I read a little bit about it, thought a little bit about it this week, and it's kind of a big deal because the cornerstone, especially in ancient days, and the bigger the cornerstone, the bigger the deal, like set the, if your cornerstone is just a little bit, like not square, you know, 
then your building is a little bit not square, but then after a while, your building is a little bit not, like it's a lot not square, and that's not good. Or if it's not level, just a little bit, by the time you get to the end of it, it's a lot not level, and that's no good. So the cornerstone in ancient culture was a huge deal, you know? And you can get that just if, if you've done a little work around your house. I was redoing uh, my daughter's bathroom a few months ago, and I was putting the vanity in. Now the vanity is square, but it doesn't fit in that space because the guys that built my house didn't really care if it was square or not, you know? So like an inch off here, I'm like, thanks guys. And you gotta figure out how to deal with that. Um, we laid deck boards on my deck. They said, you start from the, from the outside and go in because it's probably not square. And if you started from the inside and went out, your last boards would be like triangles and everybody would notice them, but they're not gonna notice them as much when they're right next to the house. Be, square really matters. I thought if you're crossing a body of water, if you're crossing the noose, it doesn't make a difference if you're off a few degrees, like it'd be a few feet different. If you're crossing Falls Lake, trying to get to this guy's house, but you're a few degrees off, you're gonna get to that guy's house. If you're crossing the Atlantic Ocean, which is like your life, and um, you know, you're headed for Spain and you're a few degrees off, you're gonna end up in Morocco, you know? And so it matters. And it was huge for ancient builders. They would, um, they would like make sacrifices to their gods to dedicate the cornerstone in hopes that they got it right <laughs> or that the gods would make whatever they got wrong right. And so this is, Jesus is the cornerstone of your life and of his church. Uh, Jesus is the exact representation of God. In Jesus, we see exactly what the character of God is like. Jesus lived a life that we were made to live. And, and so we look at his life, and as a human, that's the life. That's the way we are supposed to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the bar. Um, he died our death because we know we can't make the bar and, uh, and that there's consequences in our lives and the lives of the people around us for not being able to make the bar and we can't put that genie back in the bottle and so someone's got to take care of those consequences that we can't take care of and his death has done that for us and he rose from the dead as the first fruits of the spirit which means there are second and third and fourth fruits to give us definite hope, confident hope that we will live forever with him. Um, and, and so we come to him individually and we come to him together as a church. He's the cornerstone. What does our culture, what is like the cultural cornerstone right now? What is the thing that the culture wants you to build your life on right now? Your happiness? I do think it's your, yeah, it's your feelings. I want you to think about that for a second and tell me if that's a good idea. I remember being a teenager and, um, and um, this isn't going to surprise anybody that knows me, overthinking life a little bit. And um, I had this little book, it's probably still on my shelf somewhere, called Emotions, Can You Trust Them? The answer was pretty much no, you know? <laughs> like, there was a little illustration in a in a, um, a gospel tract years ago that said, fact, faith, feeling. You know, don't let your feeling, let your feelings be the caboose and facts be the engine. And don't let your feelings uh, drive your life. And, and feelings, really, that's, it's, pay attention to this, this just this week. Like, that's the cornerstone for our culture. Your, how you feel is what's advertised as the cornerstone. And that's kind of a postmodern way of looking at life. I, um, Never forget this illustration. It's an apologist that used this years ago. 
about a building in Columbus, Ohio. I lived in Columbus for a while, built by Les Wexner, who was, he, he had like the limited, just all these retail stores, made a mint and gave a bunch of it to Ohio State. It was, the, it was one of the first examples of postmodern architecture in the, the United States. So this is why they said postmodern, postmodernism doubts the existence of an underlying truth. Since there's no truth, there are only choices and preferences, feelings. Postmodern critical thought seeks to deconstruct meta-narratives and reconstruct them to a preferred state. So when it comes to architecture, if you think of a traditional building as being built to a grid, the Wexner Center is built to multiple shifted grids. Walls are not parable, parallel and perpendicular. It's disorienting, kind of confusing, um, and counterintuitive. And this apologist was driving through Columbus, and his driver pointed out the Wexner Center and said it's one of the, one of the first examples of postmodern architecture. And he said, what does that mean? He said, well, the driver said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. When the architect was asked why, he said, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design in any meeting? So he has pillars that have no purpose, stairways that go nowhere. The apologist said, so his argument was that if life has no purpose in design, why should the building have any design? The driver said, that's correct. And the apologist said, did he do the same thing with the foundation? It's great, it's just a great illustration of how, like, that only goes so far. Like, that's, they're not permitting that building if the foundation isn't built on physics, you know? Like, there's underlying truth or no one's safe in the building. Uh, incidentally, 10 years after it was built, it was closed for three years and $15 million worth of repairs to counter basic design flaws that caused the roof to leak and allowed sunlight to damage the yard inside. <laughs> I've said this before, there was an illustration that I heard six, 12 months ago um, about, he said, if you hold a watermelon underwater, hold it as long as you want to. As soon as you let that thing go, it's gonna come back up and pop you in the face. And so we can, we can, we can build on the cornerstone of our feelings, but it's just, if it's not true, then it's, it's, not, gonna, it's not gonna work. And we're not going to be able to escape the consequences of that. And as a culture, I don't, we're not going to be able to escape the consequences of that. And like, I want to say this pejorative, God so loved everybody, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, but he lets the wheat and the tares grow up together. And so there's like, it's just it. And we're going to, this is where it goes about proclaiming the excellencies of God and, and having a reason to give your hope, but with gentleness and respect of like, as a church, we have to patiently witness to and and, um, and be the household of God and glorify God through our sacrifices and show people that God's the goodness of God and pray that God is at work in their hearts, drawing him to themselves in the midst of like two different cornerstones. Jesus and your feelings are two radically different cornerstones. And so I'll finish by asking you individually, individually, what is your cornerstone? What is your cornerstone? What is the thing that if it crumbles, your whole building crumbles? Your whole life crumbles. I think sometimes about life, it's like a whack-a-mole, if you remember that game where you hit the mole down and like another one pops up and you just could, dang it, and like you just want all of them to go down, but they don't. And it's like that in life. Like nobody's got everything right. You know, this one thing looks really good, but then this other thing is going bad. It's just the way that it goes. But, but you can get one of those things to be the thing that if it goes bad, like, my whole life feels worthless. I was talking to someone this week who had a, one of their best friends 
um, take their life. Your cornerstone. Um, your your marriage could be your cornerstone. If it goes bad, everything's bad. Or I don't. Or if you don't get married, that could be like that hope can be your cornerstone, and just it's shattered. Uh, your kids, the best parents, can raise kids that just go in a completely different direction because your kids are little sinners. All right, they are. That's the Bible says true about them. And you know who their savior is? It's not you. Your job is not to save them. Right? Jesus' job is to save them. And so that, but that's hard. That's hard. Or not having kids. Your job can be your cornerstone. Your money can be your cornerstone. Um, you know, just think about young people. Soccer can be your corner. Your sport can be your cornerstone. Your friends can be your cornerstone. Your grades can be your cornerstone. Your self-image, your belief, your confidence in yourself can be your cornerstone. Jesus is your cornerstone. I tell my kids when I grow up, the most important thing about you is that the God who made you loves you. That is your cornerstone. I thought this week, if you gave me video evidence that the disciples just hatched this whole plan, and they're like, we know he's dead, but we gotta, we gotta, we gotta keep this thing going. So they, in that video evidence of them like figuring out how to get rid of the body, and then like making this little blood pact that we're going to die for this, or trick everybody, and just tell them that he rose from the dead. It's going to work. Like, my life would be shattered in, in a bunch of different ways. That's, that didn't happen. It's never going to happen, right? Because um, our cornerstone is huge, and it's sure and we can be confident in the hope that he's given and these realities that we are going to worship with all of the angels and we're going to tell him that he's holy because he's holy. And he's going to finish the work that he started in us. So I'll, start, I'll stop and, and Jake and Benny, you guys can come back up with this passage from Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it he is my cornerstone. He is your cornerstone. He is our cornerstone. Without him, the building will fall, either now or in the future. And I'll tell you this, if he hasn't been your cornerstone, if he's been your buddy, if he's a teacher, but not your Lord and Savior, it is never, he will, he will, it is never too late to make him your cornerstone. It is never too late to say, I surrender to you, I accept who you are and what you've done for me and my need for it, I give my life to you. And to make him your cornerstone, and he will start rebuilding your building. Uh, we are going to, um, to finish this with communion. <laughs> and so if you are here in the building, I invite you to take this, um, this cup and rip off the top 
plastic piece and um, this is Christ's body that was broken for us and so we do this in remembrance of him and this juice represents Christ's blood that has been shed for us and we drink this in remembrance of him Father thank you um, that whatever is going on in our culture uh, we, don't, we don't even have to figure out what the shifting sand is that culture is being built on right now and I don't, again I don't want to say that as like holier than thou or whatever I'm, we're not holier than thou we're holy because you made us holy and that's it we have a cornerstone in our lives because um, you are gracious to us and we're not great at building our lives on that cornerstone and we're only, we only do that because of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives but we don't even have to figure out exactly what the shifting sand is around us we just have to, we just have to rest on that cornerstone and do whatever we can to build our life on the sure foundation that you've given us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the word that you've given us that tells us everything we need to know about who you are and who we are and how we relate to you God and we thank you for um, the hope that you've given us for the work that you've done for how you have used the church how you are going to use the church Lord we love you we trust in you we believe in you and our hope is in you and we, we pray this in Jesus name Amen mm -hmm.